the reading today uh, is actually James uh, chapter 1, verses 17 to 21. Uh, but to give it some much-needed context, I'm going to expand that slightly and begin at verse 13. So James chapter 1, 13 to 21. And here's the reading in the uh, Holman Christian Standard Translation. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God. For God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, or you could translate it, don't be led astray, my dearly loved brothers. Every generous act and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. With him... There is no variation or shadow cast by turning. By his own choice, he gave us a new birth by the message of truth, so that we would be the first fruits of his creatures. My dearly loved brothers, understand this. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For man's anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and evil, humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save you. The major concern of James's letter of wisdom is encouraging Christians to persevere to persevere with integrity as they experience various trials. Now, current events, unfortunately, remind us that even today, being a Christian can mean facing very literal trial and persecution. Remember Dr. Miriam Ibrahim, condemned to hang by a court in Sudan this week, after she refused to renounce her faith in Jesus. Remember the schoolgirls abducted by Boko Haram in Nigeria. The recent video released by the terrorists show about 100 or so girls now dressed in hijabs and chanting verses from the Quran, whilst their captor says, These girls have become Muslims. Such events naturally raise questions in our minds about God and evil. And it is good to wrestle with such questions. And if you want to do that, you might read uh, a classic like uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, The Problem of Pain. Or uh, for a more up-to-date look at the issue, uh, the chapter on the problem of evil in my recent book, uh, A Faithful Guide to philosophy. But James isn't a book of philosophy. It's a pastoral letter to Christians under pressure. And James isn't addressing the question, 
how can God allow this hardship? He is addressing the question, what attitude should Christians adopt towards the hardships in their lives? Practically speaking, how do we face it? And although the word translated as trials or temptations in James is actually the same word in the Greek, it seems clear that verse 13 actually sh- uh, signals a shift in James's topic. He goes from talking about outward trials and persecutions to the inner trials of temptation from our holy trials to our unholy trials as someone once put it Douglas Moo comments God, James has said promises a blessing to those who endure trials every trial every external difficulty carries with it a temptation an inner enticement to sin God may bring or allow trials. He is not, James insists, the author of temptation. God doesn't entice us to do wrong. But doesn't Genesis 22 verse 1 say, God tempted Abraham? Well, no. At least not in the majority of translations it doesn't. Genesis 22.1 actually says that God tested Abraham. When God tests someone, he's providing them with an opportunity to raise to the occasion, to rise to the occasion. And he isn't willing or, or desiring them to fail the test. Whether or not our trials are intended by God as part of his perfect will, or merely allowed by God as part of what's been called his permissive will. God isn't deliberately trying to trip us up. In verses 14 and 15, James lays out our problem with temptation and sin. Each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. It's, of course, spiritual death. In verse 17, James begins to lay out the solution. Every generous act and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. With him there is no variation or shadow cast by turning. Now there are two main points here. The first point isn't exactly that that God and only God is the source of all and only good things. The word translated here as, as every has a range of meanings, including, you could kind of say, all manner of. The point is simply that God is a generous giver of all sorts of good gifts, including the physical cosmos. The second point is that by contrast with the unreliable, varying light given to us by the sun and the moon, God's gift-giving 
is characterised by a reliable consistency. The word translated in this verse as variation is used in the Greek for the setting of the teeth in a saw or the alternation of the seasons. James is saying that God's desire for our salvation doesn't wax and wane like the seasons or the phases of the moon. God doesn't act against his own purposes as if he were double-minded. Several commentators note that the phrase, the father of lights, echoes the Jewish morning prayer, which moves from acknowledging God as the creator to acknowledging God as redeemer. And so it comes as no surprise when, immediately following this in verse 18, James reintroduces God's gift of salvation for those who look to the perfect law of freedom and continue in it. The gospel is part of God's perfect will. The New Revised Standard Version um, brings out this emphasis by translating the start of verse 18. He, in the fulfillment of his purpose. And God won't give with one hand whilst taking away with the other. God's clear intention is that we be the figurative first fruit of the earthly creation. In 1 Corinthians 15.20, this Old Testament image of the first fruits of the harvest, which were dedicated to God in remembrance of his faithfulness, is applied to Christ in his resurrection being the first fruit. Here in James, the image is applied to those of us who are in Christ as the first fruits. And again, the emphasis is upon God's faithful provision to his people. (coughs) So in the light of God's character and his provision, it makes no sense for us to say, I'm being tempted by God. Of course, we can say God is allowing me to be tempted but we cannot absolve ourselves of moral responsibility by noting that God has permitted us to have moral responsibility nor should we dissolve the one foundation of our our best hope and motivation in the face of temptation by falsely portraying God as actively opposed to his own gospel intent. Now, when we face temptation, it is, of course, true to say, you win some, you lose some. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul celebrates how we all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory. On the other hand, Paul laments in Romans 7.21, I want to do good, but in practice, I do evil. Sometimes we endure temptation by not giving in to it. And at other times, 
we don't endure. And our evil desires give birth to sin. I think the important thing to grasp here is this. If you feel guilty because you failed to endure temptation, then your sin isn't yet fully grown. Rather, your guilt, that pained sense of failure, is itself a new trial, a new temptation, trying to draw you away from the forgiveness and the transforming power of God. The new temptation is to give up the good fight, to stop enduring at all, to stop trying to persevere in the process of humbly receiving the implanted word. It's the temptation to say, surely God won't forgive me again. It's the temptation to feel, God can't fix me, so why bother trying? It's the temptation to say, I'm being tempted by God. So let us not be led astray, my brothers and sisters. But let us humbly receive the implanted word, which is able to save us. Amen.